It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Well, welcome to the Jason and the House podcast. I'm Jason Chaffetz, and oh, this is going to be a good two weeks, folks. I'm just telling you, I get to do a lot of interviews, got to meet a lot of people, okay? But this week, we're going to talk to Peter Schweitzer. Peter Schweitzer is the author of several books that you've heard of. He's one of the best investigative journalists that we have. He has done amazing work, Clinton Cash. Um, all of these types of things, I'm just telling you a bit of big admirer. Now, he runs what's called the Government Accountability Institute. I'm associated with the Government Accountability Institute in full disclosure. But I'm telling you, he does the best work in terms of research. And uh, we're going to have a two-part podcast. Never done this before. This first podcast that we're doing this week is about Peter and his background, how Peter Schweitzer became Peter Schweitzer. All the things, all the foundation, everything that he laid down in getting to the point where he does these amazing books, they really move the meter. Everybody in Washington, D.C. is a little bit afraid of what he's going to do and what he's diving into because he exposes the truth. And he does it in a bipartisan way. He doesn't go after just Democrats. He goes after Republicans. If he sees something that's awry, something that needs exposure— he dives in, does the critical research, and you've heard people like Mark Levin and others really sing his praises. I do as well. I'm a big fan. And they do really important work to expose things that most people have never heard of. I think a lot of people, they look at Washington, D.C., and they think, oh, okay, yeah, there's this problem, there's that problem. They're all crooks. They're all this. They're all that. But then you're looking for the specifics, right? You want to hear the actual evidence. You want to hear what really what happened and re- what really went down. That's the type of work that Peter Schweitzer does. And I, I, I'm a, like I said, I'm an admirer. I try to do that my, myself to some degree. But you know what? Um, he's the best that's out there. So we're going to have a good conversation with Peter Schweitzer. We're going to give a thought or two on the news and uh, highlight the stupid because, you know, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. So let's uh, kick things off with the news. And again, um, I think I could do this on almost a daily basis. But Joe Biden trying to impress us with all of these gaffes, his memory, his cognitive capability, his consistency in relating stories that have been debunked on a regular basis, I think is cause for a great concern. Now, a couple of weeks ago in the debate, there was a question. And the question was, should a presidential candidate go through and have a mental evaluation? Now, Vice President Pence, you may like him, may not like him. He gave a very clever answer. He said, yeah, everybody in Washington, D.C. should be given one of these. Here's what I think the serious answer is to this. And I almost introduced a bill when we got into it. I really do believe if you're going to be running for the presidency of the United States, the leader of the free world, commander in chief of our United States military and your hand who can single-handedly launch a nuclear weapon, There needs to be two things that we don't currently do in this country that should be federal law. Number one, you should have to open up your kimono and show all of your financial records in everything that's happening. I'm sorry, folks, but you look at what we're going through with Joe Biden. You hear the criticism of Donald Trump for not releasing his previous tax records. I just think you should have to do that. Now, it's not current law. And so I don't criticize for instance, Donald Trump, for not releasing him. It's not current law. You know, when I was the chairman, they they pressed me really hard and they said, hey, you need to do an investigation and get Donald Trump's financial records out there and his tax returns. And I told the Democrats, no, I'm not going to do that. You're just fishing. You're not actually, there's nothing that would suggest there's something awry here. Contrast that with Joe Biden. There is questions about Joe Biden. There is evidence that there is a lot of wrongdoing. And we're going to talk about that uh, in a subsequent podcast. But I think they need to be doing that. They need to do that. 
Number two, the other thing that I really do believe should happen is we look at these presidential candidates. They should have a physical evaluation. I don't care if you're Vivek Ramaswamy and you can hit a tennis ball hard on clay court for three hours with your shirt off, or if you're Joe Biden and have a hard time walking off the stage. I think a doctor, and I would suggest it would be the doctor from the House of Representatives. House of Representatives, for continuity of government purposes, has an what's called the attending physician. This is somebody that is selected uh, usually from the United States Navy. In fact, I think it's exclusive, exclusively from the Navy that helps House and Senate members make sure that they stay healthy. Physical evaluations, essentially the doctor that's there when you're away from home. Allow them, if you file to run for govern or run for president or vice president, by the way, you have to do this physical evaluation, and two weeks later, that all those medical records are made available. Let's see what drugs you're on. Let's see if you have a heart condition. Let's see about your cognitive capabilities. There are some basic tests that can be done. And I'm sorry, if you're going to be the president, you're going to have to cough all of that up. People say, oh, HIPAA laws and all this. No, sorry. If you're running for president, you don't have to run for president. But if you're going to run for president... You're going to have to provide that type of information. I think that would go a long, long ways. And I was working on that piece of legislation. Then I left Congress, didn't do it. But I think we should do those things. And those two things should be done in a very, very bipartisan way. All right. uh, Time to bring on the stupid because you know what? There's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. I've got just one this time. Uh, I saw this over on NBC News. Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper is one of the best actors I've seen. He's an amazing talent, not just from the movie Hangover, but uh, the body of work that he does. He is clearly one of the best actors of our day. I don't care where he's at politically, everything else. He's just a great actor, okay? An engaging personality. But he's facing some backlash. My beef is not with Bradley Cooper, But from the people that are being hypercritical, from the idea, he has this upcoming uh, movie coming out called Maestro, and it's about the movie conductor Leonard Bernstein. Now, I haven't seen the movie, okay? I want to see the movie, and I do like Bradley Cooper, but he's taking all of this criticism because he put a prosthetic nose to try to better depict the composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein. And he's taking all this criticism that supposedly this is some sort of racist thing or something's wrong here. And I mean, here's the criticism. It says, quote, Hollywood cast Bradley Cooper, a non-Jew, to play a Jewish legend, Leonard Bernstein, and stuck a disguised, exaggerated, quote, Jew nose on him. That's this group that came out... That's highly offensive. Come on. We're not going to give a religious test for people that are actors that are playing somebody else if outside of their religion. He wanted to better look and portray this guy who's one of the great composers of our time. You're telling me that actors have to go through some religious tests? You're telling me that they can't add makeup or a wig or style their hair differently because there might be something? That just sounds so stupid. It just sounds so stupid. So, again, I, I'm a bigger Bradley Cooper fan than ever, but that to me is stupid. All right, let's move on because you know what? Now is the time to talk about Peter Schweitzer. Peter Schweitzer, one of the great people, uh, great invest- investigative journalists that we have out there in the world today. So let's dial him up and have a conversation with Peter Schweitzer. Hello. Peter, Jason Chaffetz. Hey, Jason, how are you? Great to hear your voice. Hey, thanks so much for joining uh, me on this podcast. I really do appreciate it. Oh, awesome. I always love to uh, to talk to you, Jason, and uh, I'm looking forward to this time together. Well, look, we're going to do this a uh, little different. Uh, we're going to do this as two parts. So this, uh, this first podcast episode, we're going to talk to you a little bit more about Peter Schweitzer and how you became Peter Schweitzer, because you've written some of the most important and compelling books, and I find a lot of um, compatibility with you, given your compassion for 
good government, for oversight, for openness, for transparency. I like you and I are uh, feel like a brother from another mother, and it's just it's good. <laughs> and uh, I love your work. You've written, of course, Secret Empires, Red Handed, Profiles in Corruption, Extortion. Um, I do some work. You run a group called the uh, Government uh, Accountability Institute, of which I'm affiliated. So I want to give that full disclosure. But how many how many books have you written at this point? Uh, you know, honestly, Jason, I'm not quite sure. I would say it's probably <laughs> over 20. Um, I started out interested in sort of foreign policy, national security back in the day. So I was writing books back in the 80s, uh, which is hard to believe, but then sort of gravitated towards corruption. And yeah, we, we've shared that uh, common interest in government, good, clean government, um, because I think we both share a love for this country and this this precious gift that we've been given uh, of this incredible place that we uh, that we live. Um, and, you know, there are all kinds of bad things that can happen to this country and there have been wars, there have been plagues, there have been all sorts of issues we face. But, you know, for me, the biggest fear I have is that we are going to, in effect, destroy ourselves um, and that our government um, is going to become a master rather than the servant it's supposed to be. So I've been passionate about it. And as we've talked about before, and I've told you before, I've always appreciated you because you're in the arena and have been in the arena when you were in Congress fighting on these issues. I'm kind of throwing rocks from like a, a thousand miles away, so it's a little safer for me. Um, but yeah, we do have the same goal, and 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 I'm proud of the fact that uh, you're now doing some work with us uh, on this as well. Well, those rocks and slingshots you're using are landing punches because they're they're affecting the direction and people. I think over the course of time, have really uh, come to trust you because of the just the. The great depths of research, your understanding of the process, and you said you've been writing books since the '80s. I, you know, at the debate a little while ago, uh, the first Republican debate, when Vivek Ramaswamy said he was born in 1985, I felt really old <laughs> at that moment. I felt I like really well. old, like, like oh my gosh, that's the year I graduated high school. Yikes. Yeah. And and I was two years before that. I graduated high school in '83. Um, so yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, and and the time goes quickly, but you know it's encouraging because you see uh, not only him but a lot of other younger people, people in Congress. You know, you've got young people in Congress. Let's that, move off uh, this topic, Faith. <laughs> this is a lose lose for you and me. Um, there's yeah, that's no winning on true. this one. Yeah. Okay. Let, <laughs> let's go back. Right. Here. All right. I want to go back to young Peter Schweitzer. Tell us, talk to us about like where you grew up, what, what life was like. I was born in kind of start there and we'll, we'll move forward from sure. there. Well, so I was born in Springfield, Vermont, but when I was less than a year old, my parents moved to a town called Kent, Washington, which is outside of Seattle. Uh, my father uh, was from Switzerland. Uh, he was an engineer that worked at Boeing, and my mother was from Sweden. Um, and I, I just had a wonderful childhood, you know, quintessential American childhood. Um, you know, great friends, great neighbors, good public education. Uh, you know, you look at the challenges we have today. I had a great public education. I had schools, uh, public schools that I went to supported the values that were kind of broadly accepted. There was there was not this kind of controversy that we have today. Uh, and I became interested in sort of public affairs and governments um, because of one man, a guy named Ronald Reagan. Um, who was running for president in 1980. Uh, and I just became fascinated kind of with this message. And then I started reading a lot. I've always been an avid reader. Uh, and I think that's the reason that I gravitate towards writing books, because I have so many great memories of reading you know, people like Milton Friedman and Thomas Sowell and, 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 and other thinkers. Um, and I became interested in that area. My dad was, I think, a little uh, nervous about <laughs> how are you going to make a living? Um, yeah. Because I went off to I went off to college. I went to George Washington University, and I still remember the look on his face when I told him I was going to major in political thought. 
um, you know, here's this engineer, this practical guy, you know, you know what this is like, Jason, and sort of the bottom half of his face, his jaw just kind of dropped. And I think he wondered, how is this guy going to uh, make a living? But my parents were always supportive and, and loving, as was my sister. So very, very blessed. And I think I, I, Jason, I got interested in sort of doing the investigative journalism and exposing things because I'm kind of knit together that way. I mean, my mom was recounting to me how as a young kid in elementary school, one of my favorite times was show and tell. I love to show up and have something to share with people that nobody else had or nobody else could explain. So I've always wanted to try to bring forward things that maybe people aren't looking at or that they should know about. And that's kind of been my driving passion from the beginning. That's interesting. So when you were young, did you play sports? Did you, were you the nerd that was just over there reading the (laughs) Thomas Sowell books? (laughs) Good question. So I played sports up until middle school uh, and then I just wasn't good enough to make the team. I mean, play pickup basketball with friends. But in high school, I was one of those dudes that was on the high school debate team. Um, And and I loved it. And uh, I did well. I had great debate partners Uh, in in high school. I went to nationals and in college, uh, uh, my debate partner, Matt Taylor, and I got second place uh, in the nation. That's impressive. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I was always interested. And the assumption was I would maybe go on and be a lawyer because of that interest and background. But I got more interested in journalism, Uh, but I had friends from all, you know, groups. I mean, in high school, people trying to get segmented, the nerds, the jocks, the high school class I went to, we were the first graduating class from a new high school. So it wasn't quite calcified into different groups. I had friends in all kinds of places uh, and I've always loved sports. I I, I love to run. I uh, like to shoot baskets, uh, you know, basketball, et cetera. Uh, but I had to give that up pretty, pretty quickly because I was not that gifted. Well, I, I mean, that makes sense. But um so what was that sort of first experience? You you alluded to it, but I'll put a little more meat on the bones. Things that you, like, I'll give you an example. Um, I remember listening to KZZP in Phoenix, Arizona uh, while I was growing up. And mm-hmm. they had this promotion. And they said it was going to be, I think it was for the weekend. It was going to be a commercial-free weekend brought to you by, and then they named whatever the company is that was sponsoring this. And it really kind of bothered me because I thought, well, that's not commercial free. They kept talking all work. We got this commercial free weekend brought to you by whatever the company was. So I actually wrote a letter to the editor and uh, of the Arizona Republic. And I said, that's not commercial free, folks. You kept interrupting all the songs to say that you're doing this commercial free. And and they published it. And I, I was just smiling because I concluded by saying, well, they actually owe us a con- a, a commercial free weekend. And I and I remember just smiling, thinking, wait a sec, I'm just this high school kid. I can't believe that I actually made this difference. And I bet they're just kind of reeling after after what they thought was a really good promotion. And um, they probably didn't want to read that. And I thought, oh, that's good. You can do those types of things. So what was it? What were those experiences for you that kind of said, oh, yeah, I actually can make a little bit of a difference here? Oh, that's that's a great question. Um, well, when I was in high school, I because I got interested in Reagan and the sort of, you know, conservative movement, I started reading National Review. And when I read National Review, I and you were a nerd, school. weren't you? <laughs> I was. I, I was a nerd. I know I was a nerd. Everybody else was, you know, picking, uh, looking at the latest MTV video. And I was reading William <laughs> F. Buckley. Uh, what could I say? Um, but I ran across this group called Young America's Foundation. Uh, I went out to their summer conference and I got active in um, Um, sort of issues. And there was this case involving a guy, people won't remember the name now, but a guy named Walter Polovchek. And he was this kid in Chicago. He was, uh, you know, a background from Eastern Europe. uh, And his parents had lived in the United States and they wanted to return back. I think it was to the Soviet Union. It was either Poland or the Soviet Union. And he was like 14 years old. And he was like, I don't want to go back there. I want to stay where it's free. I want to stay with relatives and live in the United States. And there was a big court case involving this. Well, Hmm. I got together with classmates and we did a petition drive and we sent these petitions. We got hundreds of high school students to sign it. We got media coverage and we sent those petitions um, to Chicago 
Chicago, I think, where the case was. He eventually was allowed to stay in the United States. <laughs> I don't think I tipped the balance, but sort of felt like I did. And that's when it really kind of be, became personal to me. It wasn't freedom wasn't this abstract thing that I was just reading about in Milton Friedman. It was actually something that touched people's lives. And, and I thought about this kid growing up in free America, having to go back to, hmm. you know, an unfree Soviet Union, that really kind of sparked my uh, interest um, in activism. So, you know, we did protest rallies. We um, the Reagan came to Seattle, I think it was in 1982, uh, to speak to the veterans of foreign war. I went with some friends to high school. We had signs out and we had this confrontation with the Spartacus, uh, the Marxist Spartacus League, these sort of, you know, crazy uh, left wing radicals. And and uh, all that stuff just energized me and made it very real to me. And and that kind of became my passion, uh, you know, individual freedom, um, this incredible legacy that we have in this country. And uh, that animates so much of what I do. And I know that's a big motivator for you as well. So you tell your dad, your parents, that you're going to major in political thought and go off to the <laughs> East Coast. Right, um, right. What was the college experience like? Uh, George Washington uh, was a great uh, college experience. Um, you know, there were a lot of other young conservatives there, activists there, a lot of exposure to government, right? There were all kinds of internship opportunities. I interned for some nonprofit organizations. Uh, I became involved. And, and I really thought for a while, by the way, that I wanted to run for Congress. That was the goal, at least when I was, you know, 19, 20 years old. And just be kind of became immersed in it. So I loved the experience of George Washington at that time in the in the late mid to late 80s. It was liberal, but it was not politically correct. Unfortunately, it's become more of that. Uh, and then I worked for a year after college for a group called the National Forum Foundation, which was headed up by a guy named Jim Denton, whose father was Jeremiah Denton. He was the the, the Vietnam POW. If you remember the famous story of uh, the POW who is blinking torture in Morris code. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah on TV, that. that was, that was Jeremiah Denton. And I met Jeremiah Denton and I worked there for a year. And then I decided to go off to graduate school. Uh, so I went to, uh, to Oxford university in the UK. And at that time, I really thought Jason, I wanted to be Jack Ryan from the Tom Clancy novels. I wanted to work for an intelligence service. I wanted to help fight the commies. Uh, and so I went off to study international relations at Oxford. The plan was a great plan. Unfortunately, I did my master's thesis on the Soviet military. And within months of getting my my master's degree, of course, the Soviet Union fell apart. So, right, right. <laughs> so I had to reinvent things all over again. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Peter Schweitzer right after this. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. No, but that thought process and, and going in depth, I mean, that had to be appealing. So where did you go from there? Uh, so then I worked um, with various organizations for a while. I worked uh, with organization Young America's Foundation. I was their uh, their uh, academic director uh, and I started writing books uh, and I started doing some work with NBC News. Uh, I had met a, a reporter named Brian Ross and Rhonda Schwartz. Mm -hmm. They did a show called X. Bose, which was kind of investigative journalism. And that kind of got me to understand that being able to tell stories uh, in a compelling way is, is really a powerful way uh, to reach people. So I, I wrote a book in 1994 called Victory about how Reagan won uh, the Cold War, what his strategy was. And I interviewed, you know, Cap Weinberger and Bill Clark and George Schultz and all these people that had been around uh, uh, Ronald Reagan as president. Um, and it just fascinated me that this was a story that seemed so obvious, but nobody had actually told it. Um, and that 
I think really kind of spurred me on to realize that that there are so many stories that have not been told that need to be told. And that really got me passionate about writing books. I'd done a couple of books before that, uh, but that book, Victory, it was really the first one with a major publisher, the first one that was investigative journalism in a way. And I thought, man, this is the thing that I love to do. Because like, a, you know, a normal journalist writer, they have 800 words or they have a thousand words and they're writing a new article every other day. I love the idea of being able to work on one story and really, really going deep at a very basic level uh, to bring all the truth out in it. So that that's that was really something that just really sang to my heart. And that's what I have, have been doing ever since. Yeah. Did you ever get the chance to meet Ronald Reagan? I did. Uh, I met him in 1994. Uh, it, it was arranged by Ed Meese. I was actually out in California promoting the Victory book, and I got a call in the hotel room from Ed Meese's office. Ed Meese was now at the Heritage Foundation, and he said, hey, um, uh, you're going to be getting a call you know, so be, are you going to be at your phone the next 20 minutes? You're going to be getting a call. And I said, sure. And so I get this phone call and it's Ronald Reagan's office. And they said, you know, the president would like you to come by in a couple of hours. Could you do that? And I was so shocked. <laughs> I initially thought, Jason, I thought, well, I actually have an appointment then. <laughs> but but fortunately, I didn't tell him that. I, hmm, I what said, oh, I do? yes, I have yeah. <laughs> exactly. So I went and, uh, you know, and it was wonderful. I mean, a couple of weeks after that is when he issued the letter saying that he had Alzheimer's. And uh, hmm. uh, but it was it was wonderful uh, uh, to see him. There were so many things about Reagan that I admired, his courage, his vision, his optimism. Uh, so that's one of the things that I really treasure. Was where that was opportunity it? To was it in his office in Century City? Where was it? It was. It was. It was in his office in Century City. And we talked about the book and, uh, you know, told stories uh, uh, about Maggie Thatcher and, the, you know, when he met Gorbachev and, um, you know, what that meant and what they accomplished. Uh, we talked a little bit about Los Angeles and about the city and, and uh, you know, what his concerns were about America in general. I mean, he was concerned about California, but also in general, he was worried about, you know, culture in America. He had a lot of faith in the American people, but he was worried about institutions like Hollywood and the, and the news media, what they were doing to America. So he retained the optimism, but he was also fearful is not the right word, but he was also concerned about where the country was going. Yeah, he was very compelling to me. You know, I, you know, I kind of grew up and, and, uh, you know, had some democratic leanings and, yeah, but, you sure. know, but, you know, I was young and, and I like to joke that, yeah, I was until I learned to read and write. But then I, <laughs> I also got a chance to meet Reagan in 1991 and then mm. went back to it. I got this great picture with him. Um, he had been in Utah and I got to spend like two days with him following around with his advanced person. But then, um, and the president was so gracious. He he. Uh, at the end of the trip, I asked his the lead advance person if I could, you know, get his autograph or something. And he said, "Yeah, go ask him." And uh, walking out to the private plane that he was going to have to take him back to to uh, California. And as I did so, um, he pulled out this little thing of sticky sticky pads, evidently, you know, little sticky notes that said, yep. you know, pre the president uh, Reagan on top of it. He didn't like to sign things, you know, kind of walking and talking. So evidently when he would fly on the plane, he would s sign a bunch of these and he would, you know, very discriminately, just n not just to everybody, he would take that out and just hand you one that he had already signed like earlier that oh, day. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then... He did one better. He took off his tie clip and his cufflinks, and he gave them all to me. And, oh, wow. And, oh, wow. And I got this picture with him, which I later went back to Century City to get him to sign. And so he was so gracious that way. And I think one of the more surreal things, and I hope you saw this while you were there, but he had encased in a small thing of glass, um, like a cube of, of glass, the bullet that shot him. He had it encased yes, in yes. behind his desk. It was unbelievable. Yes. It's surreal. 
Yes, yes, I do remember that. And by the way, I'm now jealous. Uh, I didn't get any cufflinks. I didn't get uh, uh, anything like that. So I am jealous uh, officially. That's a wonderful gift, and I think so like him. But I do remember him, um, you know, sharing that bullet. And I and I remember as a high school student remembering the stories. You know, when he had been shot, and they were taking him into the hospital, and he was joking with the doctors. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was just so impressive. Hope you're all Republicans. It, yeah. Exactly. 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 Um, you know, don't don't tell Nancy. She'll worry. You know, yeah. things like that. There were just sort of wonderful character qualities about him. And um, and since that time, and 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 I think you've been there as well. But you know, I'm on the the board of Young America's Foundation. They now own the Reagan Ranch. When you go up to the Reagan Ranch, you see those same kinds of uh, evidence of the sort of man that he was. Those artifacts. Um, and just just a remarkable remarkable uh, figure in his time. And, and, you know, it was a huge inspiration and guide to me in what I became interested in. Yeah. No, President Reagan was something special. Not only did he think, I think, have the right message, but he had the passion and the ability to communicate it in such a way that it was accretive. It built the party and built so much so that when he ran for reelection, he won every state with the exception of Minnesota, which he probably could have done if, had he gone and visited and pushed it over the edge. But, you know, it's the kind of person he was. Didn't want to embarrass, um, you know, uh, uh, Walter Mondale, uh, you know, right there at the finish line. And But he was one of, if not, you know, he's one of my kind of top three presidents ever in the history of the nation in a difficult time and really did propel us to win the Cold War. And uh, I'm glad you got to t spend time with him and inspired you, inspired me and uh, countless others. Yeah, no, a huge inspiration. The other one I would mention, too, uh, would be Margaret Thatcher. Um, yeah. You know, she she was an enormously important figure, actually was prime minister before Reagan was president. She was kind of the uh, the precursor, as it were, um, uh, to Reagan. And when I uh, went to Oxford for graduate school for two years, I was there from 88 to uh, 90 when she was still the prime minister. It was at the tail uh, end of her yeah. her tenure. But I, I love the fact that, you know, she was tough. She was graceful, but she was tough um, and, you know, just wonderful qualities. The ability to be iron tough, but not be harsh is a very, very, very difficult line to uh, to tread. And I think both Reagan and, and Thatcher were able to do that. So I've always appreciated both of them for that. Amen to that. I wish I had a chance to meet her, but I didn't. Um, uh, so, okay, so you, you're off and you're writing books. Not everybody makes money writing books. So <laughs> what, what were you doing? And then what, you know, walk us through how you got to today. So I started writing books. Um, I went through a, a, a couple of organizations. I'd been working at Young America's Foundation. I then moved to Florida uh, to head up the James Madison Institute, which is a state-based think tank. And then in, I think it was 97 or maybe 99, uh, I got a fellowship at the Hoover Institution out in uh, uh, at Stanford in California. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I became and I became the William J. Casey Fellow. And this was a wonderful opportunity. I was there for 15 years. They basically paid me to write the books that I had been doing in conjunction with other responsibilities. Um, and so this was a, a, a you know wonderful opportunity. You'd go out there, uh, Milton Friedman, um, all these famous uh, uh, scholars, Thomas Sowell would be there. And um, it was a great learning opportunity. And I did that for 15 years. Um, I wrote uh, more books on how Reagan won the Cold War. Uh, I wrote a book called Do As I Say, Not As I Do, Profiles and Liberal Hypocrisy. Um, and the book was really about Jason, which is, is kind of, I would say, sort of my personal philosophy, is it basically argued that people on the left want to impose these views or these um, systems on us but when it comes to their own private lives right. they actually they actually live like conservatives you know that that in other words uh, you know people that push you know we, you know we need public schools to be strong and we don't need private schools and we don't need school choice would then, of course, send their own children to <laughs> private schools or or, you know, I had a chapter in there on Gloria Steinem. Gloria Steinem would, um, you know, talk about women don't need men and marriage is this antiquated uh, system. Uh, and yet 
there's an interview where she describes how she was wooed into marriage by a man who courted her with flowers and romance, <laughs> you know, all the things she had been sort of saying was so ridiculous. And I really do think that's true. I really do think the way that people live out their lives, if they're smart and if they're prudent and if they're wise and educated tends to be in kind of a conservative manner. Uh, and that was the first book that I wrote um, that uh, made the New York Times bestseller list. So I did it for a very long time, not selling a lot of books, but just passionate about doing this. And that was really kind of a turning point. After that, uh, you know, the book started uh, selling well, getting attention on the national stage. Uh, I wrote a book called Throw Them All Out, which was about insider trading on the stock market by uh, members of Congress. Yeah. Uh, um, that I, I ended up partnering with 60 Minutes and doing a segment on that. I, I wrote another book called Extortion uh, about arguing that the problem in Washington, D.C. may be less of a example of, um, let's say, bribery and more as a problem that certain politicians are extorting donations out of, uh, uh, you know, businesses and, and uh, associations, et cetera. Partnered with 60 Minutes on that as well. And then moved on to Clinton Cash and some of the other books that are more well known. So it's it's been, you know, incredibly rewarding. Um, I left the Hoover Institution in 2015. I had started a, a group called the Government Accountability Institute uh, in 2012, and I've been doing that kind of full time ever since, really focusing on these corruption issues. And we're primarily a research organization. And our goal is always to say that we can explain to people when corruption is happening without actually using the word corruption. The evidence itself should be so compelling uh, that you should not have to use that word to describe what is clearly a corrupt act. And that's kind of the high bar that we try to set for all of our research. You're listening to Jason in the House. We'll be back with more of my conversation with Peter Schweitzer right after this. So walk us through that that process, because you always seem to be a good year ahead of everybody else. Like all of a sudden a book will come out and it's so timely and you're like, oh, he must have written this last week. I mean, that's the way these things appear. <laughs> and yeah. what I've what I've admired about the way and the process you've done it. And look, I've been there. I have visited. I've met with the research teams and all this. And it is amazing, but you're you you know a book like what you're writing takes what a year year and a half to put together, and yet it seems so fresh when it comes out. How do you do that? Like how do you how do you project out? Hey, this is what people are going to be interested in, and here's something that just doesn't smell right. Uh, yeah, it's a good question, um, and it's probably less of a science and more of an art. Uh, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Um, you know, it depends. So uh, Clinton Cash, for example, um, there had been a lot of sort of murmurings about the Clintons and about foreign corruption. And this was 2013. She had uh, you know, been secretary of state. She was no longer secretary of state. Rumors she might run for president. And I thought, you know, let's definitively answer the question. Is there corruption there or not? So we spent 2013 and part of 2014 about 18 months digging into everything. I mean, I'm talking about Ukrainian shipping records. I'm talking about <laughs> corporate, you know, corporate and corporations in, in Panama, all over the place. The research is always the lengthiest part. Uh, and I would argue the most important, because if that doesn't go well, you don't have a book. Right. Um, and, and so but I knew that there was a possibility that Hillary was going to run for president and that there was an interest in this subject. So sometimes it's trying to project ahead and thinking, where is the country going to be two, three years from now? That's, I think, the biggest advice that I could give to anybody who wants to do this kind of writing is we tend to look at the headlines today and say, what would be a great book right now? Well, the point is, you're not you don't have a book coming out now. You're going to have a book coming out maybe 18 months from now or two years from now. So you have to try to anticipate where the current's of the national conversation is going. Um, so sometimes it's just looking ahead at somebody may be running for office or there may be an issue coming forward or somebody's in in greater prominence. Sometimes it's just a trend line uh, with Red Handed, which is my most recent book. There had been lots of murmurings and discussions about China, the rising threat from China. 
the fact that Wall Street and these politicians, uh, you know, the Bidens, for example, or, or Mitch McConnell have these China ties. And I thought, let's look at everybody. Um, and again, that was a that was a two year process. So um, a lot of times it works. Sometimes it doesn't. But I think with a book, even though we think of books as these antiquated old delivery vehicles for information, you still have to be forward looking because the process of producing one is so difficult and so complicated. Well, and that's what I've also appreciated about you. You've looked at it in terms of uh, what's going well, what's not going well, but not in a purely partisan way. I mean, I go back and I read these books and you're just fascinated by these stories, just one after the other. And you start to realize, um, whoops, there's some Republicans in there as well. And But that gives you, I think, a degree of credibility that that's what become so compelling is that it's not just through um, a spectrum of just one party over the other. And the the amount of research and stuff that you do, you know, I my most recent book, The Puppeteers, the yep. people who control the people who control America. Yeah. I mean, people look at it and say, oh, sure, Joe Biden with a and Kamala Harris with some, you know, like marionettes with a puppet, a puppeteer that makes so much sense like right now. But you know, 18 months, two years ago, when we were coming up with this idea, it was, it was, hey, let's let's find out who's really pulling the strings. Let's start following the money, and that led us to this. And then people look at it and they say, oh yeah, the puppeteers, of course. Why didn't more people come out with that book? And and right, it, it, but it wasn't so obvious maybe a year and a half, two years ago. Oh no, absolutely right. And and the point is, you you know, you looked at at Biden and some of these other leaders in Washington through a different lens. People, you know, sometimes, oh, let's do another Biden book and say how bad Biden is as president. And what you really did in, the, in that book, and I think you did a great job, was try to figure out, wait, what is actually behind all of this? Right, um, right. I'm not saying Biden's a completely empty vessel. I'm not saying that. But the simple fact of the matter is there are levers and switches that are driving him. Um, and it's not just a simple question of spending two weeks on Google trying to figure that out. You actually have right. to kind of dissect what are the forces? Who are the people? You want to name names. You don't want to speak in generalities. And and that, to me, is the essence of a great book, because you learn something. It's not predictable. But it's very hard. And, you know, you put a lot of work into that book um, and the researchers put a lot of work into that book. And I agree with you. I mean, the, the, the biggest issue with corruption in my mind is it's a human condition. It is it is a right. reflection of our fallen nature. You and I are both men of faith. We would say it's a reflection of our fallen nature, our sinful nature. Other people might say uh, the flawed nature of people, but it's a human problem. It's not a red or a blue problem. Now, one dynamic I think that is slightly different is the question is, what is your approach to government? If you believe that human beings are flawed and are prone to corrupt acts, do you actually want to give them more power or do you want to give them less power? I actually want to give them less power right. uh, because giving them more power is just going to make it worse. And that to me is always the the ultimate question when somebody is is spouting a policy position is does this give more power to washington or less because as you know jefferson said the more they can do something for you they can do something to you or they can do something for themselves um, and that's what we always i think have to keep in mind in anything that's being pushed by anybody in washington there is a industrial corruption model behind all of these policy schemes. Uh, and the sooner we recognize that, we can evaluate the legislation, not just in the context of the policy outcomes, but is somebody actually going to get rich? Is this going to lead to corruption or, or other problems? And that needs to be part of the conversation in my mind. Yeah. And, and cl clearly, I mean, you're right. Every rabbit hole you go chase doesn't uh, necessarily bear fruit. I remember when I was the uh, chairman of the oversight committee, um, there was some smoke over the overseas about how they teach and educate um, members of the military's families. And I thought, oh, okay, this is going to be a liberal boondoggle. This is going to be, there's going to be so much money flowing over people getting rich and all that. And we, for about probably six months, had a couple of researchers on it. And we came out, we, there was nothing that I could find. And in fact, yeah. I was impressed. 
like, wow, the military actually does a good job. They're not really enriching these teachers. The teachers have difficult jobs with a flowing uh, student base. And I, yeah. I, I was, I'm not saying I gave them a whole total clean bill of health, but you never saw a hearing from me. You never saw anything. But, you know, we had to go and look under the rock, so to speak, and see what you would find. But that to me is exciting. That's what gets compelling is, yeah, you're going to go and you're going to do the research and you're going to find out. And, you know, when the federal government spends roughly one out of every five dollars in our country, if not more, mm. there's I mean, think about it. Every transaction in this country, more than one out of every five dollars is spent by the federal government. Are you kidding me that that's all clean and above board, and no waste, fraud and abuse? That's what gets exciting to me is that accountability, and 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 you've just done that in in such a such a big big way. Can you give us a preview as to what's next? If you can't, you can't. But if you can, <laughs> well, I have a book coming out in January of uh, 2024, um, and uh, uh, I think honestly, it is the scariest book that I've done um, and the most. Uh, compelling. And I think it's going to surprise people, people on both sides of the aisle. But it does get to this heart of the issue uh, with regards to China and why uh, so many in our leadership class uh, sort of stare with vacant eyes uh, at what China's doing. And the book's going to explore some of the things that China's doing um, that that is literally killing, killing millions of Americans. Uh, and we have elements of our political class from both sides of the aisle who want to kind of pretend that it's not going on. Hmm. Um, so that's going to be the essence of the book. I've uh, been working very hard on it. Uh, certainly don't speak uh, Mandarin Chinese, but um, have a lot of translators that have helped. Uh, and just as we're talking now, Jason, I literally just finished the check fact checking process. So I'm, I'm in kind of a giddy mood to begin with. So well, that's good. All right. That looks for it. Um, all right. So we're going to do two parts to this podcast. We're going to, the next podcast, we're going to dive deeper into the whole Biden family corruption and, and dive deep with you and to talk about that. But that's for next week's podcast. For this one, I do a thing where, uh, to get to know you a little bit better, Peter, uh, we're going to ask you some rapid questions. And I don't okay. care how many books you've written or how, many, how much <laughs> research you've done. You're not properly prepared for this. <laughs> okay, good. I'm looking forward to it. This All will right. be fun. All right. First concert you attended? Billy Joel. That's pretty legit right there. I would like to see him in Madison Square Garden before he he's, he's, he does this like once a month, uh, and I would love to see him do that. That would be great. All right, high school mascot. What was your high school mascot? New school, I guess it was, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah, the Kentwood Conquerors. The Kentwood <laughs> Conquerors. So that's good. I like that. It's aggressive. It's uh, it's tough. It's not an animal. So uh, yeah, the Kentwood Conquerors. Well, it'd be interesting to see if the political correctness of today still allows that to. <laughs> <laughs> to, to be in place. What was your very first job? Yeah, we actually got a check for doing something. Like so many Americans, McDonald's. I worked the grill at McDonald's in Kent, Washington. You know, I've, I've done a bunch of these podcasts now. It is the number one most answered <laughs> one. It, 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 McDonald's is by far the leader in terms of Hiring and teaching young people how to, that, I, I highly impressed. I did not know that you had fry skills. That's good. I, I, I had fry skills. And I got to tell you, back in the day in the 80s, if you had a job at McDonald's, you had stroke. I mean, that was considered like the cool place to work when oh, I was yeah. in high school. So that helped me on the uh, on the social scale, uh, helped to mitigate some of the nerdiness. Yeah, that, I was uh, going to say you needed did. some help. You needed help. So Absolutely. I don't know that got you back to neutral, but it, 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 it was at least trying to poke your head up above water. There you go. Yes, exactly. Uh, Do you have a pet growing up? Uh, yes. Um, I had a, a German Shepherd dog named Kaiser uh, who tragically uh, was hit by a car Aww. and we had to uh, put him down. Uh, Kaiser. And then we had a bunch of cats. I've always been, you know, people always say I'm a cat person. I'm a dog person. I actually like both. But uh, Kaiser, uh, my German Shepherd, was uh, the prize. Was, uh, yes. Yes. Well, sorry to hear about that. Yeah. All right. So if there's one person, you and your wife, you could call up and say, hey, honey, guess what? Got a special treat. Anybody in history, dead or alive, 
that you could invite over to break bread and say, hey, family, we got a special treat. We're going to have dinner with, who would that be? Well, the, the obvious one would be Jesus Christ, but you know, let's step aside from actual uh, people that are just fully human. Right, right. <laughs> um, I would, I would say Winston Churchill. I would love to have uh, a meal with Winston Churchill. A because of the history, uh, and and just the role that he played in history and what he did. And B, because I think it would be a fantastic meal. I yeah. mean, the, this guy's a conversationalist. He's funny. He's brash, but not too obnoxious. I mean, just a larger than a life personality. So I would probably say Winston Churchill. Yeah, that would be fascinating. Be sure to invite the Jaffitzes over if that happens. Yeah, we would. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, unique talent that nobody knows about. I mean, can you like... I don't know if it's a unique talent, um, but... Uh, I uh, very much enjoy uh, shooting guns, uh, target shooting. So uh -huh. I don't know if it's a unique skill, but I, on a given day, I could be a I can be a, a pretty good shot. Other days, not so good. But um, oh, I'd love to I do really that with enjoy you. That. I, we'll, I, we'll do it. Wasatch Wing and Clay is uh, my little gun club that I belong to. I don't go nearly enough, but I have so much fun shooting. Like I really enjoy yeah. it. I really enjoy well, it. And and the thing people Jason don't get is it's it's it may sound weird it's therapeutic because you're concentrating on something very precisely that's very different than anything else you concentrate on so I I find it very therapeutic so I enjoy doing that and uh, on a good day I'm a pretty good shot well I believe you uh, my wife <laughs> loves doing this too like she really enjoys it and she's she's got a dead eye she's like she's really good she's really good all right excellent uh this is make or break peter this one pineapple and pizza oh. yes or no absolutely yes oh peter <laughs> all you know that coolness quotient you were trying to drive up just plummeted <laughs> hey hawaiian pizza i grew up on it in seattle in the 80s i cannot let it go oh. the canadian bacon and the pineapple i don't have a problem with good. the bacon i don't have a problem with the canadian bacon it's the wet fruit on it that is the problem the wet warm fruit on it yes come on all right i'll give you a chance to redeem yourself here with the last question which is yeah. best advice you ever got boy that's a great question Man, that is a really great question. I've got a lot of great advice that I, I would say the best practical advice, a lot of life advice from my parents and others. Best practical advice I got professionally was from Cap Weinberger, who was Reagan's Secretary of Defense. And he told me professionally, he said, remember, the American West was not settled by cowboys. It was settled by wagon trains. And his point was, don't do it alone. You know, if you do it alone, you're going to get ambushed. You're going to get attacked. Good luck. If you have a group of good friends that you trust and that you're with, you can protect each other, support each other, and reinforce each other. So that's, I think, very good practical advice to anybody in the professional work they're doing. You're going to need allies. You want allies. Be there for them, and they will be there for you. Oh, great advice. Great advice. Love chatting with you about this. Again, Peter Schweitzer, he's got a new book coming out evidently in January. He's had some smashing hits that have really changed the trajectory of how we look at government and exposed a lot of things uh, that needed fixing and still do, quite frankly. Um, and uh, be sure to tune in next week with Peter. We're going to talk uh, a little bit more in depth about the Biden and the Biden family corruption that's coming on. But until then, Peter, thank you again for joining us on the podcast. This was fun. Thanks, Jason. All right. I can't thank Peter enough for his great work. Next week, we're going to do a podcast with Peter, and we're going to dive deep into the Biden corruption. Not just Hunter Biden, but Joe Biden and the greater Biden family. So be to, be sure to tune in next week. Now, I want you to rate this podcast, subscribe to it, so you make sure you get next week's podcast. I want to remind people that you can listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Again, I'm Jason Chaffetz, and this has been Jason in the House. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.